0: You're listening to the audio-only version of Soundwriting Pedagogies. Visit ccdigitalpress.org soundwriting for the full webtext version of the book. All okay, right, do you know what I'm opening and closing? It's not.
1: Trapper Keeper?
0: No, it's it's my it's my Mariah Carey unplugged cassette. <laughs> um. I'm Kyle oh, Stedman, and you're hearing me sharing some sounds from my past so, that mean a lot to me.
1: Very like I'm Courtney Danforth. Kyle and I collected a few of our favorite sounds and decided to surprise each other with them. I'm the one who shared this one.
0: We're playing the tape of this conversation for you here as a reminder of a simple and obvious truth that sounds have a lot of power.
1: Sounds connect to both our past selves and our present bodies, reminding us who we were and who we are. So that's uh, the Cowboy Junkies, Mining for Gold. It's the first track off Trinity Sessions. Cool. There's noise. Um, on the recording It was recorded live In a decommissioned church oh. And I um, Grew up as a Church choral singer And so the sound Of an empty cathedral Is something that Is always in my ear And I never Ever expected to hear it As part of You know The, the backdrop of A pop album Alright Alright, your turn
0: Okay, well I I'm going to play a, a musical piece too.
1: Nintendo music, right? Nintendo
0: music, of course. And um, that what's good here is it's not just Nintendo music. Um this is the Shadow Man theme for Mega Man 3. Um, and what I remember about this is I remember it was the first song that I remember hearing and on a Nintendo game and listening to and wanting to listen to just the music. Um like sometimes I even like turned on the Nintendo, went to Shadow Man and just like turned it on in the background.
2: And I remember after a while, when
0: sound affects us, it's sometimes just random and ambient reaching us the way that everyday sounds do, but sometimes sounds have been composed.
1: Again, this is no surprise. We know that speakers, advertisers, radio shows, filmmakers, musicians, and even architects pay careful attention to the way that sounds can be composed. Speech, sound effects, music, and ambient noise can all be crafted to create an experience for an audience.
0: And that's exactly why we took the time to share sounds with each other and with you, the listener, to remind ourselves of the way that sounds have been composed in ways that affect us. In a sense, we've been composed by the sounds of our lives.
1: Like we said, sounds have a lot of power. So as teachers, that leads us in a natural direction. Why not share that power with our students?
0: Why not teach students ways to record, collect, edit, and publish sounds that can affect audiences in all the powerful ways that sounds are naturally good at?
1: And that's the heart of this collection, to help students embrace the power of sound by composing with it, by writing it. So, let's give this set of practices a name. Soundwriting.
0: Soundwriting. I love it. I love it, too. So let's spend a few minutes dreaming big about all the reasons that we're excited about the practice of soundwriting. I can't imagine us starting out any other way.
1: Okay, so students benefit when they practice soundwriting in the classroom. That's what we're saying.
0: Yeah, that's a great claim. And teachers also benefit when they assign soundwriting in the classroom.
1: So when students record their own voices and produce the recordings for soundwriting projects, they're positioned as powerful rhetors working in a mode that they intuitively understand. Because, you know, they do it every day, right? Speech.
0: Yeah, and, and their identities are expressed through their voices. And students can be really powerful agents when they blend their voices through other recordings that they choose to gather from their everyday lives.
1: Absolutely. Let me interject, though, that we also want to talk about soundwriting that does not include voices.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't have to be voice exactly. I'm with you. I'd call it soundwriting in my class if a student were producing an audio piece that was composed just of sounds or music, whether the student found or recorded those sounds.
1: Okay, good. We're on the same page with that. You're also making me think about how soundwriting naturally invites students to consider affective possibilities in compositions. So, like how voices and sounds and music and the layering combine to encourage an emotional response in the audience.
0: Yeah, when we hear sounds, they very naturally affect us on all levels.
1: Soundwriting encourages composers, and we don't just mean musical composers, right? Right? We mean yeah, yeah,
0: any people, people who compose in any rhetorical mode.
1: Those who compose. Soundwriting encourages composers to think of their relationship to time, including big picture things like how long a piece should be, scope, I guess. Yeah,
0: but you know, time also includes the details of how fast voices should speak, how how quickly transitions should take, when the audience might need to take a moment to pause, you know like those moments in this American life where it's like music moment. But there's also the question about when details should be summarized, or when they should be compressed. You have to think about all those time-related things when you're working with sound.
1: So this is a concern of anybody who's trying to compose in a time-based medium.
0: Sure. Anyone who watches a video online or listens to a podcast, I mean, how long it is is something that the audience sees right away. They're always wondering, what am I getting myself into in terms of time?
1: Sure. It's one of the first considerations for anybody who wants to read that text, but also an initial consideration for someone who's going to create or compose a text like that.
0: Yeah. So sound writing in the classroom helps students practice composing in that kind of rhetorical situation.
1: True. And one of the things that makes it even easier to make some of those decisions about time is the access that we now have to tools to use in composing with audio.
0: Yeah, that's a good call. We do have uh, more modern tools these days. I mean, I remember when I was making complicated mixtapes in the 90s, where I was plugging the tape player into the back of the TV and then into the back of the record player. It was a lot more time consuming to get that exact right clip and to hit record at the exact right time. Our digital tools really simplify this stuff and it make it easier to bring it into the classroom.
1: Absolutely. And we're fortunate now that so many schools have some of those tools already on hand. We don't have to expect a jerry-rigger gear in order to accomplish this stuff. We have laptops and we have computer labs loaded with free audio editing software. And um, just about every student in my classroom has a smartphone that can record stuff. Is that true for you too? Well,
0: yeah, of course. But it's not 100% across the board in all universities or for all students, we shouldn't pretend it is. But on the other hand, we know that a lot of people do have access to make audio projects for free. Okay, good, so let's do it. Let's seriously do some soundwriting in the classroom.
1: <laughs> right now, here in our introduction?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're kind of acting here, right? I mean, performance is an aspect of soundwriting
1: sometimes. Uh-huh.
0: So let's pretend, okay? Let's pretend that right now we're teaching a class and we're so excited, hypothetically, about all this sound writing stuff that we <laughs> rush out and we assign something to our students. Like right now, I mean, like, like what should we ask <laughs> them to do? Um... Okay, so, so we're writing teachers, right? So let's ask the student to take some alphabetical writing, like an essay that he already wrote and ask him just to like record himself reading it. That's easy enough.
1: I think that's something most of my students could handle. So read an essay you've already written. Make a recording of yourself reading your essay aloud.
0: Okay, just a quick note to you here, listeners. We didn't want to play an actual clip of an actual student reading an actual essay out loud right here in the introduction. So we asked our friend Eric
1: Detweiler to step in. All right, let's give that a listen.
3: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service. While popular interest in this subject has gone forward by leaps and bounds within the last two or three years, it has been a matter of scientific experiment for more than a quarter of a century. The wireless telegraph was invented by William Marconi. Hey at Bologna, Courtney, Italy, I don't want to interrupt. What's up? And in his first experiment, I, I don't want
0: to be rude. I I feel like it would be rude if I just started talking over him.
1: Then don't talk over him.
3: The wireless telephone. Was invented by the author of this book.
0: Okay, Edna if this were a real student, I wouldn't talk over him. I'd respect his work, and, and I would be quiet, and I would listen carefully,
1: and I'd, I'd help him improve it. But you're feeling critical, I guess. Yeah, aren't you? Of Germany yeah. Um, I guess I'm
3: feeling a little bit critical. I have to say. Okay, I thought so. So. What is it?
0: Uh, surely there's there's more to sound writing than this.
3: was in turn sent out in the form of electric waves.
1: How would you know you are not listening?
0: Okay, I know, I know. I, but I listened <laughs> to the beginning, right? But I'm serious. <laughs> soundwriting has to be more than just more than just a boring recitation of words written for the page. Right, I mean surely we had all that excitement a few minutes ago. We were listing all the great things that soundwriting can be. But I think we had more in mind than just this.
1: Yeah, I definitely had something different in mind when we were talking earlier. Something more crafted, more engaged with the composition process. Something like that.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're really going to have to dig further in if we're going to understand what's happening here.
1: Before we'll be able to say if reciting words alone is or is not soundwriting.
0: I like that. So here's how I suggest we get there. First, let's dig deep into the word soundwriting. Let's look at its uses throughout history, and let's look for intersections between those ideas and what we're doing here in this digital book.
1: Right. And then after that, let's focus on our field, look specifically at work in rhetoric and composition that has dealt with what we're calling soundwriting, even if they didn't use that word.
0: Yes. And let's specifically look for stuff in our field that focuses on pedagogy, like how others in the field have talked about teaching soundwriting.
1: I like it. And in the next part, let's do a ton of actual soundwriting experiments to really dig into the boundaries of what soundwriting can be, as we mean it.
0: I love it. You know, it sounds like we almost have an outline here, right? Like, we're going to talk about the history (laughs) first and then do some lit review.
1: And then we'll spend the last half demonstrating a bunch of soundwriting experiments to help people get started. I hope all of our listeners have paid attention and are taking notes. So let's talk a little more about this word, soundwriting. Right,
0: the the history of that word itself.
1: Yeah, well, history and also, well, landscape. You know, where it has been used in other disciplines, too.
0: Yeah, we don't want to claim that we've coined this term if that's not really the case.
1: Well, I started using it in my classroom in fall 2008, I remember, because that was the semester when I had to stop reading with my eyes temporarily after an injury. So I had to quickly shift to getting my students to read their writing out loud instead of on paper. How about you?
0: Well, I I first heard the word in two ways. Um, I did hear it from you when I talked to you later on after 2008. um, But I had actually heard the word earlier on soundwriting.org, which is a, a site that used to exist that was made by Will Burdett at the University of Texas at Austin. And we actually have a clip here of Will talking about his use of the word soundwriting. Interestingly, at about the same time you started using it. And I don't think you two knew each other in 2008, did you? I don't think so. Yeah, so it it sounds like you both started using the term soundwriting at about the same time. So let's hear an excerpt of Will talking about his use of the term. And I should mention that you listeners at home can hear an extended version of his history on our extras page.
4: Sound writing is a translation back from phonograph, which came from the Greek words for sound and writing. So lots of people have used some version of the word sound writing, and I don't want to stake any particular claim to it. But I think it does have extra meaning for people who teach writing, because sound writing can also mean writing that's well constructed. And so for those of us who work at the intersection of writing instruction and multimedia, the multifaceted of sound writing create, you know, a particular resonance. When I first got to UT in 2007, I was thinking about all of this, all of these resonances. And I took classes that allowed me to research sound and I did research into dictation and sound writing machines um, starting around 2008. Then on August 26, 2010, I registered the domains writingwithsound.com and soundwriting.org and I continued writing about sound at a blog that I hosted at soundwriting.org. I ramped up my research and really started to think seriously about how to incorporate sound into the writing classroom and into scholarship in rhetoric and writing. The DWRL put out a special issue of Currents in Electronic Literacy on writing with sound in 2011.
1: So that's interesting. They use the term writing with sound now, not quite as much as the actual one word sound writing, the the word we're starting to use more.
0: Yeah, but let's just stick with our word for now and see if we move in the same direction that they did.
1: I like it. Um, And one thing Will mentioned was things like dictation, kind of this 19th century model of how people talked about sound writing.
0: And actually, we found that too. We went to Google's Ngram search. You know, that's, that's where you search a word and Google will say, all right, well, over time, here's how prevalent that word was in all of our scans of millions and millions of Google books.
1: I looked at our Ngram results and just started browsing around at the different texts um, just to see how people were using the word sound writing, both over time, but also across disciplines to see what was out there.
0: Cool. So what do you got?
1: Well, one of the first results that I found is an 1886 paper by someone named Brinton. And in it, he explains that written languages begin as simple thought writing, and that's like pictographs. Okay. And eventually, these types of languages evolve into sound writing. Those are phonetic, alphabetic systems, you know, like our own.
0: Okay, so sound writing is like the letters on the page represent the sounds that I'm making.
1: Yeah, instead of the characters on the page representing an idea or a literal example of something, a pictograph or a hieroglyph, for example.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, so what else did you find?
1: Well, I read about four sentences in a 1990 article in Russian literature Triquarterly, which isn't something I usually read. The author there was using our word soundwriting as a literal translation of the word Zukopus.
0: Zvukopis. (laughs) Is it (laughs) Russian? Uh,
1: I think so. Um, I hadn't heard that word before, so I followed the thread a little farther. I found a Croatian radio program named Zvukopis, and it seemed to have something to do with multimodality.
0: Okay, that's really promising.
1: Yeah. I also found a St. Petersburg record company named Zvukopis in 1911.
0: (laughs) I love 1911 Russian record companies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And a review that used that word to describe a Czech sound installation. I also found a Serbian musician using Zvukopis to talk about the experience of listening nostalgically to music from his childhood.
0: So Zvukopis as affect?
1: Uh, Maybe chirotic memory?
0: Yeah. um, So... That's a lot. What else did you find with Suvocopus?
1: Well, I did an image search using the Cyrillic characters, and I came up with some stuff that looks like middle school language arts worksheets.
0: <laughs> okay, so that that's pedagogy. What were they teaching?
1: Um, something about prosody, I I don't read Russian, but from what I could tell, it's something about repeated sounds in verse.
0: Repeated sounds in verse. Okay. So was there anything scholarly you found online besides that original thing that you found in the Russian lit journal?
1: Some. Um, when I searched with the English transliteration, I found a critical biography of a Russian futurist poet that uses Vukopis and translates it there as sound painting.
0: Interesting. I wonder how else the word Zvukopis gets translated.
1: Well, Kyle, I found an article that translated as sound script and another one translating it as visual noise. Um, there's an article that calls it Russian Cubo Futurist Zvukopis. <laughs> and that one says the English equivalent is landscapes of sound. Um there's this one Russian ornamental prose. It translates instrumentovka zvukopis as sound orchestration. And this one translates it as sound repetitions. And this one says pattern of sound.
0: Okay, wait. So so we've got translations of zvukopis as sound painting, as sound script, mm-hmm. visual noise, landscapes of sound, sound repetitions, and pattern of sound. Okay, so there's a lot of connotations going on there do you have any denotations any actual like definitions of the term
1: well there is a piece language specificity of the poetic text in russian poetry and belarus that uses the word
0: does it define the words vukopis
1: i don't know it's in russian
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay it's my turn. Well, here here's what I found. There, there's a dissertation that defines Vucopus as, In prosody, the same as a system of sound repetition, specifically selected to create a rustle, whistle, and others.
1: You found that super fast. Um, <laughs> is it a poetry dissertation?
0: No, it's, it's in music history.
1: Huh. The repetition of sounds that evoke a rustle or whistle.
0: Apparently. Okay, so the author explains... The essence of zookopus lies in the close connection between the initial sound, i.e. physiological acoustics, and metaphor. The concept of Zucovia metaphora is another characteristic feature of Gogol's writing.
1: That is way more specific than anything else I found. But maybe that's related to this last piece of info.
0: Okay, what's that?
1: Well, when I looked at all the translations, I noticed that most of them suggest something about repetition and pattern. And so I started thinking about noise instead of voice or music. And that dissertation you found suggests sibilant sounds, right? Rustles and whistles. And so all of that leads me to static. That's a type of noise. Sure.
0: I guess noise is part of sound as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I know Stephen Hammer studies noise, so I asked him if he'd run across our word Zucopus in the history of noise art, and he thinks he has when he was reading about zaum.
0: I'm afraid to ask what zaum means.
1: I know. (laughs) This is where I stopped for now. It's definitely something I want to look into later, though.
0: (laughs) Cool. But for now, we have a lot. We can still say that Zucopus can be translated as sound writing, that it involves immersive, multi-sensory memory, and people using sound can write it that way, taking advantage of sound's powers. That's all part of sound writing. So there are some associations to our work there, too. It's intriguing. It's really cool stuff.
1: Well, let's back up a minute and look at some more solid ground, perhaps, historically speaking. Okay. Okay. Melville Bell was a phoneticist. He was working in the area of physiology and elocution. And fun fact, his father was also a phoneticist. And late in his career, Melville Bell started to apply his effort toward guiding pronunciation of deaf speakers. So he had this book, um, 1864, Visible Speech, The Science of Universal Alphabetics. And in there, he published a system of phonetic notation that shows users where and how a speech sound is made made by human bodies, and how exactly to replicate that sound just by reading it.
0: So just to make sure I understand, so you read the page, and you know from reading the page, like from using this visible speech system, exactly what it sounds like? Like it it doesn't say use a long A or a short A.
1: Yeah. In Bell's system, there's a drawing of the mouth and it shows how to form the sound.
0: So so you're reminding me of the International Phonetic Alphabet, like the stuff that you see on a Wikipedia page that shows you how exactly to pronounce something?
1: Yeah, exactly right. The IPA got started in 1886, and that was about 20 years after Melville Bell's book. But IPA relies on the reader already knowing the sounds of the Latin alphabet to read its character set, because IPA symbols are based on the Latin character set, and the sounds that we recognize from those letters. Bell's system, which he called World English, those characters represent positions of the mouth parts when speaking to signify the corresponding
2: sounds. Uh.
1: So they might show, is the tongue at the back of the mouth or is it between the teeth? Those elicit very different sounds.
0: So the idea is that a deaf speaker may never have even heard spoken language before, but they can still learn how to form the sounds of speech by reading this book. They know where to put their tongue and how to open their mouth and all that
1: stuff. Yeah, that's the idea.
0: So it's interesting. When you said Bell a while ago, I thought we were going to talk about Alexander Graham Bell, the guy who invented the telephone.
1: Right. So here's the connection. Alexander Graham is the son of Alexander Melville Bell. And guess what Melville's father's name was? Um, what? Alexander. <laughs> Alexander Bell
0: so this is kind of confusing
1: <laughs> yeah it is they're all connected though so the first two that would be Alexander the grandpa and Alexander Melville the father both of them worked in elocution and then the son or grandson Alexander Graham Bell he actually used to help his father demonstrate the visible speech system Melville would be out presenting and he'd ask for a volunteer from the audience and he'd write down whatever it was that she said using his visible speech system on a chalkboard or something I don't know And then he would bring in his kid, Graham, right? And Graham hadn't heard what the volunteer had said, but he would be able to read it off of the chalkboard. And because of the way that visible speech worked, he would replicate both the words that the volunteer had spoken, but also usually he could do her accent because, you know, the whole thing is about sound.
5: ah.
4: I believe Japanese, kere na.
1: What you just heard in that clip was an enactment of Alexander Graham Bell and the visible speech system from a 1992 film, The Sound and the Silence.
0: So is this in any way related to Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone?
1: Uh, sort of, in a roundabout way. One of the things that Alexander Graham Bell wanted to do was to teach deaf users how to read spectrograms so that they could use the telephone to receive communication from speaking users without having to hear it so they could see it with their eyes and learn to recognize waveforms as language.
0: Can people really do that? Can like can people read spectrograms, like the waveforms, when, when I'm recording in Audacity or some other kind of program and I see the little little spikes when I talk? Can people read that?
1: Uh, I guess it depends on what you mean by read. Uh, you know, I mean, when I'm editing myself, I recognize my breath marks and my ums and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess I can sort of recognize my voice versus someone else's. Um, When I when I look at my waveform using my microphone, it tends to give me like a little stalactite to my voice in, until I fix it. But I, I still can't actually read the words. You, you know, like I can't look at it and say, oh, I know what word I'm saying there. But But Bell, Alexander Graham Bell, the grandson, he thought that some people could, or at least they could be taught to read waveforms?
1: He did, and he managed to prove that it was possible, but... um I mean, it wasn't popular. We don't do it now. It didn't last. But he was able to call up Mr. Watson in 1876 in the first telephone call ever. And this was part of a huge rush of inventions related to sound transmission and capture in the last third of that century. And, you know, that's lasted.
0: Yeah, kind of like Edison's phonograph, right? That was around the same time.
1: It was. That was 1878. And when I was looking at the engrams again, I found another Edison-related path. There's a use of the word soundwriting in an 1896 patent for a graphophone.
0: A graphophone? Like phonograph, but just switched around?
1: (laughs) I think it's like startup speak, where you just start leaving out vowels or whatever. And in this case, they they just switched the two parts of the word around. Mm -hmm. But... It makes sense. Graph is writing and phono is sound. There's only so much you can do with those two words. It's all about talking about sound writing, uh, but in the sense of literally transcribing representations of sound onto a medium. So the graphophone was invented in Bell's lab, the Volta lab, as an improvement to Edison's phonograph from 1885.
0: In Bell's lab. So his interest in sound continued to be big picture, not just about transmitting over the phone, but also recording it later on. So if I think of the history that you've told me here, that would mean that there's a line connecting the graphophone all the way back to the phonetic writing system invented by Bell's father, the one that he used to read for guests.
1: Right, Melville. And then, you know, back even farther than that to his grandfather, Um, he was involved in elocution systems beyond writing systems.
0: That's cool. So sound writing's journey, like the word itself, it went from writing sounds onto the page to inscribing sounds onto wax. So the word suggests taking sound waves and saving them for later. So to me, like to Kyle, the teacher, that's really interesting. When I talk about soundwriting today, I'm pretty insistent on the same thing that soundwriting involves taking sound waves and saving them for later. So I think if someone were writing alphabetic text about sound, I wouldn't call it sound writing. I don't even know if I would call a live speech sound writing. I think I really reserve that term for something that involves actual recordings, inscription. I mean, that's where the writing part comes in. Um, Maybe it's more than that too?
1: Well, let's look at it from a different direction. So a lot of what we've been talking about has to do with business technologies, right? Yeah. I found an 1889 article that uses our word, soundwriting, and it's about Pittman shorthand. And that's a system that records sounds that are heard instead of the words that are said.
0: Okay, so it's a little bit like Melville Bell's visible speech, um, and a little bit like other phonetic writing systems, but with more of a, a practical businessy purpose to it?
1: Yeah, very practical. Um, there was a series of popular phrase books during the war that taught soldiers to pronounce words in Italian and German and French. Um, it didn't actually teach soldiers the languages, just how to say things. These books were advertised as soundwriting and that was entirely based on Melville Bell's work. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, there's also this thing called an autograph. It's a dictation machine that was advertised as an electric soundwriter.
0: So that's another way of combining words to mean soundwriting, right? Like. Auto, like audio and graph. There it is again.
1: Yeah, it wasn't very popular, that particular word. It was mostly used by the company that made the autograph um, until the 1980s when I started to see a couple of other dictation manufacturers starting to use it in their ad copy.
0: I love that we're like one more group of people who think that we're so clever, right? Putting together the words sound and writing, and really, we're just part of this long history of people who have been saying variations on sound writing just about forever, like even into the 1980s. It's totally gnarly.
1: It's the jam.
0: Tubular.
1: Totally rad. Excellent. Yay!
0: High five! So, what did you find after the 80s?
1: Well, I did find one article from 2000, which is the first use of the word soundwriting in our own field, as far as I could tell.
0: Well, look at that. I mean, I know you and Will Burdett both started using the term in around 2008, but you're saying eight years before that, someone else was saying soundwriting and rhetoric and composition.
1: Well, it's pretty different here from how we've been using the term soundwriting. In this article, it's used to talk about dictation machines
0: dictation machines. Okay, so tell me more.
1: This is a 2000 web text in Kairos. The title is Cyborgs and Digital Soundwriting: Rearticulating Automated Speech Recognition Typing Programs.
0: Okay. So, is it about teaching students to compose with sound?
1: Of course not, Kyle. That would be much too easy. No, here the author wants us to be wary of the supposed neutrality for using those technologies.
0: Okay. I think he's right about that.
1: Yeah, he is.
0: Okay, so we got a hold of Stanley D. Harrison, the author of that Kairos webtext, and we asked him to tell us more about his concept of soundwriting, especially in terms of how his project intersected with ours. So you're gonna hear an excerpt of a longer piece that he shared with us, which you can also see on our extras page.
2: Download commencing. Audio buffering.
6: I still believe that cyborg soundwriters should consider what it means to be a machine organism that features Read that.
2: A speaking human. Read that. A microphone transducer that turns human sound wave energy into a continuous flow of electrical energy. Read that. A voice-to-text computer program that changes electric current into strings of digital code. Read that. A word processing program that turns digital code into written words on a computer monitor. Read that. A text-to-voice program that translates visible words and their digital code back into electric current that in turn causes the headset's transducing element, or speaker, to vibrate and produce sound waves that in turn simulate a human voice in the act of reading words on a video monitor.
6: Today's cyborg soundwriters, with their speech-to-text smartphones, still need to know who and what they are. Who could argue with that? But they must do something more. They must turn their supernormal powers upon the unspoken possibilities of the unwritten future, and that's where writing for sound comes in. Today's sound writers need to learn about their heritage in sound by listening to the recordings of such greats as Archibald MacLeish, Morton Wishingrad, the Firesign Theatre, and Yuri Rzovsky. They need to learn how to develop their craft by reading texts on audio production and aesthetics by long-lost authorities like Eric Barnow. Robert L. Mott, Donald McWinnie, and Rudolf Arnhem. Then finally, when they're ready, soundwriters should sound the uncertain depths of their computer human selves and the world they call home so they may answer the call of the uncertain future. Soundwriting and soundwriting. It just makes sense.
2: Download complete. We return you now to your regular audio stream of consciousness.
1: All right, Kyle, I would really like to hear what you have found out about the word sound writing more as compositionists mean it. Is anyone else in our field using the term?
0: Well, really, what we've already heard here is the only time we've found people actually saying this is sound writing using that word. You know, it's you in the classroom, it's Will around 2008, and then there's the Kairos piece from Stanley Harrison. Um, Besides that, though, as we know, a lot of people have in rhetoric and composition been talking and writing about sound in our field a lot lately.
1: Yeah, there's people talking about music, about Foley Arts, and voice, and acoustics, and resonance, and tons of other things. Yeah. Let's hear about all of them!
0: Okay, well, hold on. Here's the thing. I'm I'm trying to think of our audience here for this book. And I think that the people we're trying to make this book for are especially people who want to teach with sound in the classroom. And I don't just mean teach about sound or like listen to music and then analyze it and write essays about it. I mean people who want their students to open up an audio editor and play around with the actual sound files itself. Isn't that who we're working towards here?
1: Yeah, so these are students who are making sound and maybe curating sound. They're certainly building and writing with sound, not just about sound.
0: Yeah, so I think that actually can give us a little bit of a focus for this upcoming lit review section. We can say that if someone is giving us advice about how voice and music inspire written language, then maybe we can just push that aside in an honoring way and say, hey, we love that work and you've done a great job, but that's not what we want to share with you right now. And actually, I think a really good model for what we're including in this section and what we're not is the fall 2016 issue of Kairos. It's issue 21.1, where three of the four lead articles have to do with sound in some way, but only one embodies the kinds of things that we're covering here in this section.
1: I know where you're going with this. You want to talk about Tanya K. Rodriguez's piece that she co-wrote with nine students, navigating the soundscape, composing with audio.
0: Absolutely, I do.
1: Great choice. It's a rich, multi-layered web text that features student audio productions, detailed pedagogies, and a ton of citations. For teachers who are new to sound writing, it's a fantastic place to start. It even goes into depth about how student compositions can thoughtfully use music, silence, sound effects, sound interaction, and voice.
0: Yes, that's the kind of work that we'll discuss in this Lit Review, articles that are all about how to teach students to manipulate sound itself. And we can actually contrast that to two other articles in that same issue of Kairos.
1: They're both great, of course.
0: For sure, but they're not about students making sounds. Janine Butler's Where Access Meets Multimodality, the case of ASL music videos, is also fundamentally interested in pedagogy, just like Rodriguez's piece with her students. But in Butler's article, students are primarily viewing and creating videos. So of course, video also includes sound, and her students are instructed to create a brief accessible video, but teaching students to manipulate sound doesn't feel like one of her core concerns to me, even though issues of sound and deafness are at the heart of her article. Does, does that distinction make sense to you?
1: Yeah, that article is super cool. It's about sound and pedagogy, but it's just not about sound writing pedagogy.
0: Exactly. So similarly, Crystal Van Coten's singer writer choric exploration of sound and writing, again, it's in the same issue, it's also powerful in moving, perhaps especially to people like me who sing in choirs. Me too. Yes, but as much as Van Coten's piece is about understanding another angle of how sound works on our bodies, it's not about teaching. So we won't go into detail about it here or other pieces like it. And we could go on forever about other awesome pieces like that. I mean, just look at the groundbreaking work in two special issues on sound that changed the way people in rhetoric and composition talk about sound. But again, which don't talk about pedagogy at all. I'm thinking of the 1999 special issue of Enculturation that Thomas Rickert edited. It's called Writing Music Culture. And there's also that 2013 special issue of Harlot that John Stone and Steph Sorasso edited on Sonic Rhetorics. We still love that work, even if it's not our focus here.
1: And to add one more wrinkle, there's a lot of work on sound and even teaching with sound that isn't coming from our disciplinary world of comp. That work matters a lot. It's amazing. But we're staying focused in our own world here, at least for now. Hopefully future projects will more systematically make connections.
0: Absolutely. Uh, a good example of how comp work on sound overlaps with other related disciplines can be found at Sounding Out. It's a site that describes itself as a weekly online publication, a networked academic archive and a dynamic group platform bringing together sound studies scholars. I mean, if you just search their site for pedagogy, you'll find all kinds of pieces that I think we should all read, um, including some retcompy type stuff. There's a 2012 article from Gentry Sayers um, called Audio Culture Studies, Scaffolding a Sequence of Assignments. His students do a ton of recording the sounds around them and even build up to an audio portfolio. So, so yes, read the stuff on Sounding Out. Sometimes it's uh, more related to our world, sometimes it's not. But honestly, we're not gonna go too far down that rabbit hole of sonic pedagogies from communication, from media studies, from other areas of English studies.
1: Okay, so we've got Burdett and Harrison using the term soundwriting, and we've got enculturation and Harlot special issues, but that is not nearly everyone working on sound and writing, right?
0: Of course not. Some articles are in print-only sources, but because our field has so many cool digital spaces for publication, like this one, there are some online places where we can actually hear teachers and sometimes even student voices doing soundwriting a little bit. Again, even though they're not using that word soundwriting.
1: That's cool. So let's list the most important stuff.
0: Cool. So, uh, another special issue, right? People always talk about the 2006 Computers and Composition special issue, uh, which actually has a print edition and an online edition. And the print edition does talk about teaching some. There are people like Bump Halbretter, who's talking about the audio aspects of video projects. And there are people like Jody Shipka in the same issue talking about students who made audio projects. Um, She did give them a broad do something multimodally kind of assignment, but some of them are doing stuff with sound. But then if you look at the online edition of that 06 special issue, there are some people there who are talking about sound writing. And we can actually hear some of their reflections, hear some of their work.
1: I think that's so important when we're trying to learn about sound to be able to hear examples of. It. i
0: know there, there's something exciting about it too um i'm not just imagining what do you sound like
1: okay Hallbritter and shipka excellent what else you got
0: okay so in the computers and composition online special issue we've got kevin brooks and four others who have a piece called what's going on listening to music composing videos and they include a whole lot of student examples there it's kind of a bummer that the downloads don't work anymore but i'm, I'm sure the recordings of the student work exist somewhere <laughs> um In that same issue, Michelle Comstock and Mary E. Hawks have a piece called Voice in the Cultural Soundscape, Sonic Literacy and Composition Studies. And they include, again, plenty of student examples. Like, here's an example from Michelle's student, Miku Rager.
2: How much accent is too heavy of an accent? How much accent am I allowed to have?
1: I think it is so brave when people interrogate their own accents. It's really revealing. What else is in that issue?
0: Well, besides just student examples, it's also a nice place to feel a little bit closer to the actual author of the piece. Uh, For example, in that same issue, Stephen D. Krause has a piece called Broadcast Composition, using audio files and podcasts in an online writing course. He introduces teaching with voice with his own voice.
4: next section is sort of a how to, in general, record audio files, and also how I did it for this particular class.
1: Well, those are all awesome and important, but what about more recent stuff?
0: Well, in 2011, there's another special issue. Um, it's in currents in Electronic Literacy. It's actually the issue that Will Burdett mentioned a long time ago. that came out of UT's DWRL, that's the Digital Writing and Research Lab. It's a really rich issue on writing with sound, with 14 pieces that cover remix, video game music, captioning, autoethnography, and metal. <laughs> But three of its pieces really say a lot to the teacher of sound writing. So of course, those are the ones that we wanna highlight here. So for example, Crystal Van Coten had a piece called A New Composition, a 21st century pedagogy and the rhetoric of music. And in that composition, she had a video that really heavily features her student, Caitlin Patterson.
1: I wanted the music to be as like transitions to. So each section of each song is kind of like a paragraph or an idea in a traditional piece or a traditional written piece. Wow, that is really smart. I am not sure I imagined it would be possible to use sound writing to get students thinking about arrangement. Um, That's a little like my idea for developing an audible punctuation system.
0: Cool, I wanna hear more about that sometime. (laughs) Uh, In that same issue, there's also an article by Mark Blauhara and Kevin Putman. And in this case, Blahara was the professor and Kevin Putman was the student. And together they made a hip hop track about the student Kevin dealing with his OCD.
2: When I think back to my 10th year, when my OCD
0: began, trying out my socks, my left and right was for my just right plan. Unbeknownst to me, my life was overcome with symmetry. Checking and rechecking and that responsibility
1: I love this. I keep trying to get my own students to wrap their essays, and so far, nobody wants to try it.
0: <laughs> well, in that same issue, we also can hear Lydia French and Emily Bloom talk to each other, or interviewing each other, and sharing some of their students' work, again, in a piece that's called Auralisy, From Plato to Podcasting and Back Again.
6: I think this was a bit much for me to ask them. I've looked at some other um, assignments, and mine was very long. It was 10-minute mm-hmm. um, oral composition
1: those pieces from currents remind me of mo folks web text on audio essays in computers and composition online
0: yeah in an article called making waves voiceless audio essays and the visual rhetoric of aural rhetoric folk highlights two very different audio essays made by his students pausing between clips of them to offer his own audible commentary
4: the next student example is an example of what i would call the voiceless student essay the student audio
0: example contains many many voices 12 presidents, just to name a few, but it does not have a trace of the student's actual physical voice, though I argue it maintains the other hallmarks of writing voice I just mentioned. I know as I assign audio essays in the future, I'll think more about how I'm approaching the topic of voice because of Folk's article.
1: I know we had that early piece that uses the word soundwriting, but there has been more stuff about teaching with audio in Kairos even before the 2016 issue we were talking about a minute ago.
0: Yeah, for sure. In, in 2012, do you remember Jennifer Bowie had two companion pieces about podcasting in the classroom? They're definitely soundwriting pieces in exactly the way we're talking about. Uh, and like we're, we've been saying, it's actually cool that we get to hear Jennifer making podcasts about podcasts.
2: Welcome to
1: Rhetorical Roots and Media Future, How Podcasting Fits into the Computers and Writing Classroom. Episode
2: 1, Overview and Definitions. Podcasting in a writing class? Considering the Possibilities. Episode 1, Introduction and Background.
1: Let's make sure to talk about Cindy Self's 2009 piece too, Kyle. Uh, everybody cites that one.
0: Right. It's, it's a really big deal. Her College Composition Communication 3Cs article, which is essentially saying to the field, hey, people, we need to pay more attention to our reality and the big picture of all that stuff here in composition studies. Um, in some ways that we're not talking about here, but also it does have a teaching focus.
1: But that's a printed piece, so there's no audio that's integral to it. She's linking out to these four examples?
0: Yeah, she actually says, here is where you can go onto my personal Ohio State server and listen to these examples of sound writing of students making pieces. Um, The the link doesn't actually work anymore, as as often happens here. When I emailed her and asked her, she said that anyone who wants to hear these can email her, and she does have the link to the pieces still on her Google Drive.
1: Good, so everybody email Cindy.
0: And the other cool thing about that piece is she has a lot of notes directing readers to other websites and a lot of course sites where we can see what other people have been doing in the classroom. And, you know, that's part of what we found since we've started this project. We we start saying, hey, you guys doing stuff with sound out there and all these people are saying, well, well, yeah, we're, we're trying and trying. We're just not getting a lot of support. So, again, that's part of the context here. We're trying to point people to that piece and to other pieces so they can see what other people are doing.
1: There are a bunch more articles that talk about sound writing without including sound as part of the publication, though, printed or alphabetic stuff like Mary E. Hawks and Michelle Comstock. They have a 2017 article composing for sound sonic rhetoric as resistance that walks readers through a four part assignment sequence focusing on resonance and listening. Their students do a lot of recording and editing, but often with the result that they're trained to listen in new ways, bracketing their analytic responses to sound in favor of the different ways sounds make their bodies resonate. It's not a web text, like you don't actually hear the students' work, but it still says a lot about what we can do with sound writing in the classroom.
0: Yeah, of course. And you remember Steph Sarasso and her 2014 award winning college English piece. So she's talking about multimodal listening and this idea of feeling sound in your body. Even though it's a traditional printed piece, she ends in that traditional way that our field so often does with some suggestions about how to attend to these issues in the classroom. And some of those suggestions of hers actually involve students making sounds together.
1: Jonathan Alexander had something in 2015 about Glenn Gould, right?
0: Yeah, Glenn Gould, that guy who hummed when he was playing Bach in his recordings. <laughs> right. Well, there's there's a whole documentary about Glenn Gould that I haven't seen that I really want to see.
1: <laughs> I guess I should actually hum Bach there, shouldn't
0: I? No, it's totally fine. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, the the cool thing about Gould as a character is that he was someone who really paid a lot of attention to recording, and not just recording, but he was controversial because he would splice his tapes together. He would try to make the perfect recording from his different takes, and some people didn't like the idea of that being, I don't know, kind of fake.
1: Sure, I guess it, you know that's not an authentic performance. Yeah,
0: but it was him the whole time, so it, it was authentically edited together. Mm. I don't know. Um, but like Sarasso, Alexander, remember who's writing about Glenn Gould, he ends his piece with specifics about how we can encourage students to think of the same sort of things that are inspired by Gould, kind of the way that Sarasso's article is inspired by Evelyn Glennie.
1: Computers and Composition has been putting out a good number of articles about soundwriting.
0: Yeah, the, the year after Alexander's piece, Jean Bissett has a piece too, where she essentially tells her readers how her students responded to soundwriting assignments. She had her students listen to gay liberation radio shows and had them make audio collages.
4: This is The Gay Life, KSAN's
3: public affairs show for gentlemen who prefer gentlemen, for women who prefer women, and for people who prefer people. You don't have to be gay to listen. Good morning. And
0: then Bassett's article, even though it's a print article in a print journal, it does give a lot of respect and a, a lot of voice to her students. She quotes extensively from them saying things like, this is what I did and what I went through, and this is how I grew as I was making this assignment.
1: With these three articles, we get a pretty interesting representation of the types of sound that people are writing with. We have environmental sound. We have musical sound. And then we also have an archival sound. This is
3: The Gay Life, KSAN's public affairs show for gentlemen who prefer gentlemen. Absolutely. It's
0: reminding women. us of all the genres Men that are, are available to teachers when we they do bring people. sound writing into the classroom.
1: So maybe people would think that sound writing is the simple reading of words, but these examples are showing us that it can involve quite a number of inspirational sound sources. Yeah,
0: I think that's even been a theme in some recent work. I mean, Sarasso's piece even reminds us that we can go beyond discursive stuff we can go beyond the simple text and discourse when we're making sonic texts.
3: I argue that alongside, and in addition to semiotic approaches to multimodality, it is necessary to address the affective, embodied, lived experience of multimodality in more explicit ways.
0: And then Katie Fargo Ahern, in a different computers and composition piece, also reminds us that when we're using sound, we don't have to just rely on words.
1: What I found myself questioning was not how to introduce audio essays or voiceover, but how to introduce students to uses of sound that do not necessarily draw on the spoken word, voice, or discourse.
0: By the way, let me mention that those recordings you just heard of Sarasso and Ahern are the author's voices reading their print work for this project, just so you're not confused or you try to look for the digital version online or something. Got it. Here's one more recent piece that I think makes a similar point. Erin Anderson's 2014 piece in Enculturation even specifically critiques assignments that, and here's a quote from her, that restrict voice's material potential to the direct representation of intentional speech. So she's reminding us that we can do so much more than record just intentional speech.
1: Yeah, sound is effective, embodied. It's not just reading or speaking.
0: Sound is so much bigger.
1: So let's think back to our fake student example of someone reading an essay out loud. And now, if we follow the literature that we've just talked about, it appears that just reading an essay out loud is not what we would call soundwriting, but maybe it's a step toward soundwriting.
0: I like a step toward soundwriting because I think that piece has to be a step towards something.
1: I think so. It's interesting just to listen to somebody read something. There's a you know a whole audiobook industry built on that idea.
0: Yeah, you're right. I, I guess I'm trying to ask myself what I want from that piece. Is it just music and sound effects kind of worked in? Do I want like a radio drama? Surely there are other options
3: of what we can do with sound.
1: Let's listen to it for a little while and just remind ourselves what it sounds like before we figure out where to go from here.
3: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications While popular may interest be in service. the subject has gone forward by leaps and bounds within the last two or three years, it has been a matter of scientific experiment the wireless for more telegraph than a quarter a was invented by William Marconi at Bologna, Italy in 1896, and in his first experiments, he sent dot and dash signals to a distance of 200 or 300 feet. So Courtney,
0: one of the things I think we want to do is model the sorts of decisions that a student might go through if he or she had a boring recording like that and was like, wait, what else can I do with this? Maybe even in the classroom. So I, I think what we found through our playing around is that there really are a lot of possibilities.
1: I think this is also the same process that an instructor might go through when trying to figure out what sort of assignment or what sort of expectations to give to a soundwriting assignment, maybe if she were doing it for the first time. Yeah.
0: So what do you think about this? Let's call this series of experiments that we're about to do atudes
1: etudes i love that etudes are those exercises that you do when you're starting to learn to play an instrument it means study um so they're they're skill building exercises exactly
0: i i also think we we ought to warn our listeners that we really did try a lot of experiments with this boring student recording we we composed (laughs) a lot of etudes here so you should be ready for an extended section here where we play around a lot i don't know if you need to take a bathroom break or something (laughs)
1: There's a pause button, Kyle. All right. Surely they can use that. Plus, we are so likable that it seems obvious that um, everybody's going to want to stick around.
0: Okay, good. Warning given. So let's start by thinking about the aural qualities of voices themselves and how messing with them could yield new kinds of texts and new kinds of meanings.
1: So, for this experiment section, each of us took the same original audio file, and that's the one that you've already heard the fairly boring, plain, the reading from a fake student. So, Kyle and I took that read aloud essay file and attempted a series of reasonably simple soundwriting experiments on it, trying to show you guys a ton of techniques to move from a recorded reading to something that's closer to what we mean when we say soundwriting.
0: Exactly. So, you started off with some experiments finding and playing with voice, right?
1: I did. I decided to focus on the element of human voice in a reading, starting out with the question of how different voices doing simple readings might affect the meaning of the text, maybe reading it straight or maybe playing around a bit.
5: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service.
4: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service. The
7: wireless telegraph was invented by William Marconi at Bologna, Italy in 1896. After Marconi had shown the world how to telegraph without connecting wires. It would seem, on first thought, to be an easy matter to telephone without wire, but not so, for the electric spark set up damped and periodic oscillations, and these cannot be used for transmitting speech.
1: You heard there the voices of my brother Jonathan, my good friend Edward, and 13-year-old Kaylin, a budding actor and niece of Karen Lunsford. So just hearing
0: all of those voices makes me think that sometimes just asking my friends would add some texture to my recording. Like there's something inherently interesting in different voices. Even this whole introduction, I think if it was just me or just you talking the whole time for more than an hour, I think it would be a lot less interesting than it is hearing us talk to each other. I think that's a really important part of what we're doing here.
1: And remember how we teach students to use voice in the revision process for just you know normal typed up writing. When you have somebody else read your essay out loud, they have different mannerisms, different phrasing, and the meaning starts to evolve differently when you hear your writing in someone else's voice. That's
0: such a good point. I mean, that's a core of peer review and writing center pedagogy all around. Yep. So do you have any other voices beyond just those?
1: Well, then I tried something I had never done before. I knew about Amazon's Mechanical Turk.
0: Mechanical Turk. What's that?
1: It's a service for micro work and micro payments. Um, I think it's usually used for uh, consumer survey type stuff where you answer questions about soap and you earn 30 cents or something like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I found a listing in there for a scholarly speech study and they were paying workers, you know, micro payments for recording themselves reading passages out loud. Cool yeah, so I used that as a model, and I made one for us. And I got sixteen different people from all around the world to record themselves reading the same text for us,
0: okay, so that that's about twenty cents per reading?
1: Yeah. do you think that's fair? i It was market price, uh, but I you know I just I don't know how to value that type of thing.
0: yeah, that is a seriously interesting question i'm I'm not sure. Well, let's hear the voices you got.
7: He also showed how they could be received at a distance by means of a ring detector, which he called a resonator. In
4: 1890, Edward Branly of France showed that metal filings in a tube cohered when electric waves acted on them and this device he termed a radio conductor. In 1895, Alexander Popov of Russia constructed a receiving set for the study of atmospheric electricity.
1: Marconi was the first to connect an aerial to one side of a
2: spark gap and a crown to the other side of it.
3: Adding a Morse register, which printed the dot and dodge messages on a tape to the pop-off receptor, he produced the first system for sending and receiving wireless telegraph messages.
0: So earlier when we, we heard from your brother and your friend and Kaylin, uh we heard people putting on other kinds of voices and accents, but these are really some non-native English speakers
4: speaking English. The wireless telegraph was invented by William
6: Marconi at Bologna, Italy in 1896.
1: Actually, I would say that most of them were non-native English speakers, although that wasn't a question that I asked in the survey that went along with this, and it wasn't a skill that I was seeking when I made my post.
2: The first vital experiments that led up to the invention of the wireless telegraph were made by Heinrich Hertz of Germany in 1888, when he showed that the spark of an induction coil set up electric oscillations in an open circuit
1: Another thing that I found out uh, through this Mechanical Turk project was um, I got some variations of pronunciation. The word um, bologna, which we have in the original reading, it was printed there using the Italian spelling, bologna. But some of the speakers um, who recorded themselves pronounced it the American way, like the food, bologna. (laughs) And um, others of them pronounced it with something closer to an authentic Italian accent. So, you know, that was actually pretty fascinating.
3: Bologna. Bologna. Bologna.
7: Bologna.
2: Bologna. 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 Bologna.
6: Bologna.
0: And what you're making me think of is how we're pretending that this was a student essay... Just to remind you, this is actually our friend, Eric Detweiler, who's reading from the the Radio Amateur's Handbook. Thanks, Eric. Um, Yes, thanks. And the Radio Amateur's Handbook is a public domain book that he found on Project Gutenberg from the 1920s. So it makes sense that it would use some words that we don't use so much today. But I think there might be some parallel there to writing in classroom situations. Like Eric and all of those Mechanical Turk people who said Bologna, they're all saying words that they didn't really write. It can be really interesting to hear the effect when others read our words aloud in their own voices.
1: The last thing that I decided to try with all of these human voices was to see how the meaning of the performance might change depending on the number of speakers, how many were speaking at the same time, who spoke which sentences, things like that.
3: Before delving into the, the mysteries, mysteries of,
1: receiving of receiving and sending, and sending messages without, messages without, without wires. wires, a word as
6: to the history, history of the art uh, and its present day applications present may, be of day of service. Application may Maybe Be of service. Well,
2: While popular, popular interest, interest in this subject, subject has gone forward has gone by,
3: leaps, leaps, by leaps and bounds in the last two or three years, it has been a matter of scientific, scientific experiment for more than a quarter of a century.
1: In this last example, I have all of the human voices that I collected all speaking the same text at the same time, and I think you'll find that this is not a particularly useful effort. <laughs> Before of well,
0: the a a <laughs> wow. So before we heard that one, you, you mentioned that it wasn't particularly useful. And I think that's an interesting question here. What use are these etudes serving? And I'm not sure that's entirely our purpose right now. You know, we're not just here to say, look, here's something you can do and exactly why you would want to do it. I think part of our attitude here is just to playfully show what you can do beyond just simple reading.
1: So maybe I should say that I can't imagine how this would be useful playing all of these voices at the same time, but I am able to do it, and perhaps someone else has an idea for how to use it. Do you have an idea?
0: No, no, it just seems so symbolic. You know, all these voices together. I'm I'm picturing Michael Jackson in a Coke commercial. (laughs) And all these people from around the world singing together. Maybe like, it's an Amazon commercial. I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're sharing their voices and they're singing in the same voice. We all sing with the same voice, The same
1: song. The same voice. We I get where you're coming from, but I am not sure that I hear it. I get it when I do it, and that's a useful thing for soundwriting too. Not all of these things that we listen to have to be listenable. They can be noise. And still have a purpose in writing them. Putting them together is still soundwriting, whether or not the end product is audible.
5: Yes. Kyle, Courtney, you've been talking about human voices. I am not human, yet I can create sounds. Is this not also soundwriting? I mean, what about robots?
1: What about robots, Robot John?
5: Robots make sound. Can I be a sound writer?
0: Well, I guess you're right, Robot John. Humans aren't the only people who can translate words on a screen into sounds. In other words, if we go by the old definitions of sound writing, computers can create sounds from writing as well.
1: (laughs) Sure, you're talking about text-to-speech applications. I am. (laughs) Well, in case someone didn't know what text-to-speech applications are, I think that was a fine definition. It's taking a piece of text and having the computer sound it for you, read it for you.
6: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service.
0: It sounds partly like we're talking about accessibility technologies, you know, screen readers that let people hear things on the screen read to them. And of course, that if that were the situation, you might want to hear it in a voice that is somewhat like your own, in an accent somewhat like your own.
1: Sure. Or maybe you're reading something from a writer from a different culture, and you would like to hear the reading closer to the author's accent than to your own. So perhaps you're going to use a very different voice
6: before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sounding messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service.
0: Yeah, if I was listening to a Harry Potter audiobook, and it was in an American accent, it would just seem really weird to me.
1: That would just be rubbish. Right.
0: <laughs> I'm going to go eat some kippers for breakfast now.
1: <laughs> kippers are disgusting.
0: I don't even know what a kipper tastes like. but um, <laughs> so, okay, so beyond just accessibility... Why else would you have text-to-speech? Why does this technology exist? I mean, I guess, maybe for GPS? Maybe so my phone can read things to me while I'm driving?
5: Kyle, you're missing the point. Many people use text-to-speech devices every day, but it's not important to list them all here. What is important is that you think about your own reaction to these voices. For instance, listen to these two female robot voices reading the same text. Do you like one of the voices more than the other? Pay attention to your gut reaction.
2: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service. Before delving into
7: the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service.
5: Think about it, Colin Courtney. What is it about different voices that might make someone prefer one over another? How does the voice of the reader guide the emotions of the listener? Which voice do you prefer, Kyle? Which voice makes you feel something, Courtney? Is it my voice? I want it to be my voice. Why don't you love me? Why? 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 (laughs) Why? Okay, (laughs)
0: We're laughing... (laughs) with Robot John here, but there is something real here. I think we, we do associate location and even how fancy someone is, how posh someone is based on their accent. And of course, that's stuff that's not built into the language. It's it's built into the cultural subjective ways that we interpret the language.
7: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the internet's presentive applications may be of service.
0: I'm sure there's a really interesting study somewhere about how people like me respond to differently gendered voices and how ambiguously gendered voices come across to different people. There are a lot of interesting angles that the burgeoning sound writer could go here.
1: Absolutely. It wasn't that difficult to get robot readings, so it's probably not that difficult just to change the sound of a human reading also, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of different audio editors give you some sort of choice about how to affect the, the timbre and all of the, the ways that a sound sounds. Um, right now, I'm using Audacity, for example, and there's right there on the menu, there's it says effects, and I can highlight something in the waveform in the audio and click the effect and just apply it to it.
1: And I have an iPhone app that does some of those effects. So you don't always have to be bound to a desktop computer to do these types of things. You can have it in your pocket.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. And I think just about any audio editing software now and in the future would let you do things like this, add different kinds of effects to sounds and to voices. And again, I think some of those are more useful than others. There's that word useful we keep using.
3: Marconi was the first to connect an aerial to one side of a spark gap and a ground to the other side of it. He used an induction coil to, induction to energize coil the spark, and gap, energize gap, the spark and and gap and a telegraph key in the primary, and to and and the and primary, primary circuit, circuit to break, circuit break and up, and up to the, the current into signals. Adding a Morse register, which printed the dot and dash messages on a tape. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Like I can imagine if I was recording a radio drama, if I'm trying to make it sound like someone is in a different sort of space, if I'm trying to make it sound like someone is on an old timey transistor radio thing, I could add some kind of effect to do that. If I wanna make it sound like someone's underwater, I can add echo or reverb. These are all basic things that are are pretty easy. If I wanna make someone's voice sound higher or lower, if I wanna play it backwards Again, all of that is, is easy in today's software. I think you can get into some really interesting questions about, same as we've been saying over and over, How how does the meaning of an audio text change when we start adding little layers to the voice effects? And it's interesting, as we're talking about the assumptions that people make about voices, we haven't mentioned age in there, but of course an older or a younger voice could read some of the text from this radio amateur's handbook as well.
7: Okay, so we're doing chapter 20. Mm -hmm. I can tell because of the two X's. X means 10, so...
1: That was our favorite 10-year-old named Jacob, who chose a passage from the Radio Amateur's Handbook and read it aloud with his aunt Karen Lunsford.
7: All you need for this set are a crystal detector. Is that like a crystal? Yes. Wouldn't that be really expensive to buy a crystal? It's kind of hey, like, like a $5. piece. I think it's a, isn't it a piece of quartz? I'd have to look it up. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. A tuning coil. Well, that's pretty much just cardboard wrapped around dried spring, and an earphone. What I'm wearing. Mhm. That I'm wearing too.
1: Wahaha. <laughs> the thing that I think is really interesting about that file, Kyle. File, file Kyle. I, I see. Uh, <laughs> Is that there are two voices speaking to each other. What we heard from the ensembles before, both the human and the robot voices, was voices speaking the same thing, but not interacting with each other. And what we're hearing in this example is two voices reading a thing, but also talking about how it is being read and about the meaning of what is being read. Yeah. And that's
0: really useful. It's useful in a lot of ways. (laughs) There's the word useful again. It's, It's useful to help me understand what it is that I want to say, to help me understand what my recording means what it means to me and what it might mean to other people.
1: It's a little like what you see with DVDs. You know, when you have the director's commentary or whomever worked on the film, you can hear them talk about it as you're watching the film together.
0: Yeah, totally. It it adds a new aural layer to the visual text and it helps you understand it in a new way. And if we're talking about adding new aural layers that help you understand things in a new way, I think we can move on from voices alone to adding background music to a recording. So far, we haven't talked a lot about layering. We've been looking at what we can do with the text itself, but of course, audio editing gives you the opportunity to play with other things at once. And there's something cool in that sense about sound, right? That it lets you hear different layers of audio at the same time. You know, like if I took out the drums, you can tell that I took out the drums. Or if I take out the bass, you can tell that I take out the bass. But I can still move in my mind as I'm listening and think, yeah, I hear a lead guitar and a rhythm guitar and I hear keyboards. We can't really do that in text quite as well, right? We don't at once in time get lots of different kinds of information, but we can do that in sound. You know, sometimes I'll do this thing in my classes where I'll I'll play a speech by Obama or somebody else and I'll, I'll just pick whatever his most recent speech is and I'll play it on YouTube and then I'll open up a playlist in Winamp, because I still use Winamp, <laughs> uh, that has maybe eight or nine <laughs> instrumental tracks already picked out. And I'll just start playing clips of those instrumental tracks along with the speech. And it's really interesting how it sounds a little more gloomy or it sounds a little more excited based on the music that I layer underneath it. It really changes a lot about how we're meant to interpret the words. Okay, so to mimic that effect here, I took the recording of Eric and I played a lot of different genres and styles of music underneath it. I know that in some ways we've heard this recording so many times by now that we're sick of it, but I I really think the different music changes the way we hear those words. Okay, so I'm hoping that our listeners, you at home, will really stop and think about how the music affects your emotional reactions to this text
3: and how the music changes what it means to you. Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service. While popular interest in the subject has gone forward by leaps and bounds within the last two or three years, it has been a matter of scientific experiment for more than a quarter of a century. The wireless telegraph was invented by William Marconi at Bologna, Italy, in 1896 and in his first experiments he sent dot and dash signals to a distance of 200 or 300 feet. The wireless telephone was invented by the author of this book at Narberth, Pennsylvania in 1899 and in his first experiments the human voice was transmitted to a distance of three blocks. The first vital experiments that led up to the invention of the wireless telegraph were made by Heinrich Hertz of Germany in 1888, when he showed that the spark of an induction coil set up electric oscillations in an open circuit, and that the energy of these waves was, in turn, sent out in the form of electric waves.
0: A lot of times in my classes, when we're talking about doing stuff with sound, the three things that I say are, okay, do something with voice, do something with music, and do something with sound effects. So we, we've already played with voice and music. So I guess now the question is, what can we do with sound effects? What, what do you do with them?
1: Well, let's start out by thinking about how we can change the background audio environment of a simple reading to change the read environment of that same text. So how can we manipulate, not with music, but with other sounds, how can we manipulate the listening experience?
0: Right. And to get those sound effects, I mean, there's a simple option that I record them myself. Like I literally go out with a microphone or my phone and see what I can get of a car going by or the footsteps that I need or the creepy door that I want. Or the crinkling Lay's potato chip bag.
1: The roaring of a lion. <laughs>
0: yes. Or as I often find myself doing, I, I go to a, a website and just download them instead of recording them myself. I often use freesound.org, who, I don't know, in 20 years, will that still be around? But uh, <laughs> isn't this great? I'm imagining people in 20 years listening to this. <laughs> but r- right now, freesound.org is great because everything there is licensed by Creative Commons, so you can use it for projects like this.
1: And it's, it's good stuff. Yeah.
0: So in the... The etude we're about to hear, for instance, I imagined that our fake student, Eric, was walking through a cave for some reason. And in that cave, he was very intent on talking about the invention of radio. <laughs> uh, but as I imagined it, I, I thought maybe he was a little scared. So I just started searching on free sound for the word cave. I started searching for the word cavern. And I actually ended up layering six different sounds all together. I you know it's five plus Eric. And I, I came up with something like this.
3: Before delving, delving. Delving. delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, without, without wires. wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service.
1: I think the term for this sort of experiment is soundscape, Um, but this is a composed soundscape, not a soundscape in the sense that you actually went to a cave and captured the audio material of that space. I can imagine asking students to build out the sound environment like this for their own readings or for famous speeches or something to get them thinking about tone and information density.
0: I like that, information density. So Mm. what did you do with your sound effects experiment?
1: Well, um, I started thinking back to, I don't know if you were taught this, but to make a hypertext essay, you know, where every word in the thing links out to something that says more about that word. Yeah. So I wanted to try an audible hypertext essay. Um, Some of the sounds that I used are historical audio of the particular technologies discussed in the essay, and other of the sounds are just sort of representative or fun.
3: The wireless telegraph was invented by William Marconi... (coughs) at Bologna, Italy in 1896, and in his first experiments, he sent dot and dash signals to a distance of 200 or 300 feet. The wireless telephone was invented by the author of this book at Narberth, Pennsylvania in 1899, and in his first experiments, the human voice was transmitted to a distance of three blocks. Marconi was the first to connect an aerial to one side of a spark gap and a ground to the other side of it. He used an induction coil to energize the spark gap and a telegraph key in the primary circuit to break up the current into signals adding a Morse register, which printed the dot and dash messages on the tape to the pop-off receptor, he produced the first system for sending and receiving wireless telegraph messages. You know the main thing that makes me think of, I don't know if this is connected or
0: not, but it makes me think of me playing around with tapes in 8th and 9th grade. I remember I would tape a song off the radio, and I remember specifically doing this with Beck's Loser, you remember i'm a loser baby so why don't you yeah yeah up? i do uh, um, and i remember i i would take the tape and i he would say some word and then i would pause the tape and i would get my sound effects tape out and i would rewind it to the right part and then i would hit pause and hit record and i would essentially add that sound effect in or that clip from another song or whatever it made me think of hmm. um, it was kind of like associative listening so there's a sense of, oh my goodness, this sound and the song made me think of this other sound and I put it together into one tape.
1: That's awesome. Uh, did you ever listen back to your creations and did it change the listening experience of the song when you listen to the enhanced file?
0: Yeah, uh, I, I listened to them a lot actually. So it, it, after a while it would actually sound weird to not hear my enhancement because I would expect <laughs> something to come in. I, I think it also gave me... Maybe this is weird, it gave me a weird sense of pride. It made me feel like, look what I did. Look how I hopped into this thing that was on the radio and I'm a part of it now.
1: I think we're starting to move into a set of activities that may not create pleasing or informative sounds to listen to, but there's still a lot of work to be done in creating them. And I think as you described with your tape players, doing the work of sorting out where those sounds go and gathering them and bringing them in is a very useful type of pedagogical activity.
0: Yeah, and you're you're making me think too about the importance of juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, what this is is curation, right? This Mm -hmm. is making choices about what elements to include in a composition, which ones to choose, which ones to leave out, but also how to place them um, in relationship to each other to enact a new meaning.
0: I love that. And of course, when we're juxtaposing, when we're curating, there's always a little bit of danger there because you lose some control over the meaning. People will always associate different things with the things that you curated, with the things that you put next to each other. But that's a good thing. That's a really, really playful thing.
1: It is playful. And it's it's fun to listen to.
0: Yeah. And if we want to talk about playful and fun, tell me if this is weird, but I, <laughs> I actually wrote a song. <laughs> ba- you wrote a song? Yeah. Based on... The text of the radio amateur's handbook.
1: <laughs> That's a lot more work than just running things through filters, Kyle. I'm not sure we can expect that all of our students are going to have the musical talent that you do. We'll
0: wait until you hear it. But, <laughs> uh, but, So before we listen to it, let me tell you about the words that I wrote and where they came from. So I, I started with that same text that our fake student Eric was reading. And I was trying to take the basic ideas of what the author was saying and reinterpreting them to make them rhyme, but also to fit with the rhythm and stuff like that.
1: Well, that's a great activity for a composition classroom. You could be getting students to summarize and paraphrase. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm summarizing and paraphrasing in a musical rhythm. And what was interesting in that sense is that I, I really had to read it a few times to figure out what the attitude of the speaker was. And I'm almost embarrassed that I actually hadn't noticed until I read it to write the song that... He seems a little, what's the word? He's he's a little...
1: Uh, I think bitter is the word you're looking for. <laughs> yes,
0: yes he, he really is bitter, I think. He's, he's essentially saying, hey, you've all been talking about radio, and you think it's kind of this brand new thing, but you know, actually, um, there were all of these inventions before that, and by the way, I happen to be there, so if you go back to the 1890s, 30 years before this text was written, there was Marconi, and by the way, there was me who was there, and we were both standing on the shoulders of this Heinrich Hertz guy who was learning about electricity. So yeah, it's it's very much a tone of don't you dare forget us.
1: It has a very aggressive, purposeful stance, and I didn't see it the first um, dozen or so times <laughs> I read it either. <laughs>
0: yes. So maybe with that in mind, here's a song that I've decided to call Marconi written in the voice from the persona of the author of the Radio Amateur's Handbook, which is Frederick A. Collins.
6: I want you to know The history of the radio You think it's brand new But for decades, people who are smarter than you have looked into it. It's time you knew it. Will Marconi lived in Italy. He sent Morse code three hundred feet. Then three years passed,
0: and it was me who made a voice transmit across the distance of three blocks. But first Heinrich Hertz of Germany learned of the ways of electricity he made a ring detector and he paved the way for clever people like myself and others like marconi <laughs> this is
1: so <laughs> silly <laughs> So one of the things that I'm hearing in that song, Kyle, in terms of sound writing pedagogy, is that you've made a lot of choices in deciding your instrumentation and your genre. This is not concert music. This is not marching music. This is a specific type of music. And you've made choices to get us there. So tell us what choices you've made.
0: Right. Um, Some of those are really just the practical material choices of composition that I had at my disposal. I have a cheap Casio keyboard that I've recorded with before, so I knew it would be easy to plug that in. I knew how to do it and get the levels right and all that stuff. And once you choose that, once you say, am I really going to pull out actual acoustic instruments? Am I going to write something for string players? Am I going to pull out the actual piano or guitar? And, And you say, no, this is Casio only. That decision, to some extent, chooses the genre for you, I think. Honestly, when the song got written, you and I had already made a lot of decisions about this introduction. I knew that way at the beginning of this intro, there would be kind of an 80s pop feel to it. So I thought, well, that's something I could do here. Um, Honestly, I've also been listening a lot to the band Churches. It's a Scottish trio of electro pop. It's very infused with an 80s kind of feel.
7: Song exploded.
0: And not too long ago, I downloaded the instrumentals of all of the tracks of Church's first album. So I've been listening to those instrumentals. I've been thinking about how they compose them. So I know this sounds like I'm giving it more importance than it is because it's really just a silly song. But for our students, this is my point, the, the stuff that they're listening to and the resources they have are going to affect what they might do if you ask them to write a song.
1: Well, we always want students to be able to produce something using the tools that they have easily available to them. So that's a huge, important place to start. But secondarily, just like we were talking about with the different readers and the different robot voices, there is a lot to be said for taking a text and putting it into familiar voice. And in this case, the familiar voice is a genre or an instrumentation of music. So our students can choose a genre that speaks to them that might not necessarily speak to us. We're going to stick with The 80s pop, because that is what we're into. But somebody much cooler than us could definitely do a cooler type of music. Yeah.
0: I think there's something here, too, about being okay with a quality that isn't necessarily professional. I mean, I was tempted at first to get someone else to sing it. Uh, You know, I'm a choral singer, but I'm not like a, a solo, I'm up on stage singer. And I actually played the song for my wife, who actually can for real sing. She was a voice major in college. And, you know, she made that little face like, Oh and her her comment at the end was it's really catchy and I she didn't say it but I think a little bit of it was oh that's that's your voice singing it huh and <laughs> and I'm I'm not embarrassed by it but I I think the point here is that there's an aspect of that good enough philosophy that I think we can sometimes rely on when we do sound writing stuff when we're using our own voices whether singing or talking and putting them into our projects I I think that's something I want to encourage my students to do more, to not feel like when I give them assignment that sounds scary to them that, oh my goodness, I have to do it perfectly. I want to train people who might be inclined to be overly perfectionist to loosen up a little bit as they're composing.
1: Some of the other things you were working through here that we haven't talked about yet include the layering that you decided to put in, making decisions about what's going to be loud and what's going to be soft, what's coming to the front and what's going to be in the background. And you're also asking yourself questions about pacing and phrasing. So we've got that going for us here, but you are a talented musician, Kyle. And I can't expect that all of my students are going to have anything like your skills. For someone who is already terrified of writing an essay, I could give them an assignment like this and they would be completely mortified that I'm asking them to make a song. How much can we expect our students to really do?
0: That's a good call. And I can imagine a few answers. We talked a few minutes ago about an article by Mark Blahara and Kevin Putman, that 2011 piece called Remixing the Personal Narrative Essay. And in that one, the professor actually gave all of the students a beat. Like, I think the professor actually created the beat. But if you aren't someone who can do that, I mean, there are a lot of places like ccmixter.org where you could download a beat. Uh, But then the professor said, "Okay, students, write a rap that goes with this beat.
1: I, I am crazy about this.
0: <laughs> it's really cool, right?
1: It's amazing.
0: Yeah, because you can imagine that with that kind of core similarity in the projects where everyone's using the same beat, everyone's going to sound so different anyway. They're going to take it in such different places and have different rhetorical purposes for their piece. So I think that's one answer to the question. Uh, but I think there are a few other ways to make songs, too, using apps. You know, didn't you play around with something like that?
1: Well, I found a couple of iOS apps, and I assume they're similar things for Android. But these automatically create songs. So you record snippets of words or something, and you can make some limited choices, such as genre, for how to automatically produce those snippets of text as a song or snippets of voice as a song. (laughs) So here's one example from Songify.
3: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present day applications may be of service. While popular interest in the subject has gone forward by leaps and bounds within the last two or three years, it has been a matter of scientific experiment for more than a quarter.
1: Here are a couple of examples from a program called Diddy that makes an actual music video of your words, so that's pretty fun.
6: Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending them. Before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending him, before delving into the mysteries of
2: receiving.
1: And this last one is called auto-wrap because it makes an auto-wrap.
3: Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as, as the history of the art and present-day applications may be of service. While, while popular interest in this subject has, has gone forward by leaps and, and bounds within the last two or three years, it has been a matter of scientific experiment for more than a quarter of a century. Wireless-
0: okay, so students are playing with apps theoretically here, the, the same way they do, the same way I do. So what's the value in that? Why, why would I do that in the classroom?
1: You know, I don't really have an answer for that. This is a really low engagement activity. Um, it, it just means taking a very small file and running it through an app and waiting 10 seconds. So there's not a lot of pedagogical engagement here But if we think again about wanting to put information, put messages into voices that are familiar or pleasing to us, this is one way to accomplish that. So it's not writing a totally new song, but it is catchy and it might be a way to remember different things. If you think about something like Animaniacs or the Sesame Street songs, you're able to learn through song in a way that's um, maybe less available to you in other ways.
0: Absolutely. And I I wonder if we need to keep asking that question about where and why is this useful? And sometimes just allowing play for itself is its own end, right?
1: Well, I have to tell you, I spent quite a few minutes playing with these apps. So there is a decent amount of fun to be had in making them even if the output isn't necessarily purposeful. Well, as much as I enjoyed your song, Kyle, I wanted to try making a song that was a little more automatic, something that didn't require musical or lyrical skill. So I decided to create my song by collecting sounds that other people had created, um, making a few of my own, and combining them to make a semi-musical performance with the same material, but using pieces and putting them together in a very different way.
0: Wow. So let's hear that.
6: Before delving
3: Oh, you
1: So what I did here, Kyle is I went and found a CC licensed beat.
0: Right, from Creative Commons, nice.
1: Yeah. And I put that in first. I didn't have to make it myself. I just downloaded it and brought it into my audio editor to give shape and substance to the entire
0: piece. And our students could do that for sure.
1: Oh, easy, very easy. So then I took the text of the essay that uh, Eric was reading. I, I ran that through a Morse code generator.
5: Wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. You,
0: of course, you, you ran ran the essay through a Morse code generator, okay.
1: As you do. And so then I had an audio version of that, and that's the stuff that sounds like, you know, beep, 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 you know, that part. Yeah. So, <laughs> there's that. Then I recorded myself singing the Morse code. Um, and I scaled that up to sound like a baby, so that's part, that's the part that's that's going dee, 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 (laughs) um, and, uh, the Morse code, uh, because of the content of the reading, it involved Morse code and how to transmit in Morse code, um, that's why I tried that as a, as a motif. Um, it's important in the history of sound transmission, and it's compelling. It is compelling. (laughs) And it's also binary, right? So automatically, it makes me think that there is an element of data stuff, um, something that can be done with Morse code that is not as accessible in other forms of data, and it's. It's just groovy.
0: It is groovy. <laughs> I, I think those should be the two things that our students ask themselves and they're heuristic when they're, you know, deciding if they should make a choice. And does it in some way connect with the deeper meaning of my piece? And is it groovy?
1: Is it groovy? Yeah. That's the rubric.
0: But there's more there too, right? There's more than the beat and the bleeps. Uh, how would you describe the mood of the piece? I mean, I, I think with mine, right? I, even though the text is a little pushy and defensive, It's a lot more danceable, but yours is, what's the mood here?
1: Uh, I was going for sort of a a chill lounge feel, like Buddha bar, something
3: like
6: that.
0: So if we move away from the songwriting a little bit, I guess we've moved here from voice to music to effects and then back to fully composed music. It seems like sometimes with sound, the only thing left, at least off the top of my head, is to just totally throw a wrench in it and make something that's even weirder than ever.
1: (laughs) Well, I got started on that. I did some data bending. Nice. This is not something I had done much of before, but I made an attempt. So what I did was to take the original red essay um, that we started with. Okay. And with this first example, I also took the text, the alphabetic text itself, and I brought both of those into my audio editor so that means bringing in the txt file as raw data into the audio editor
0: (laughs) wow so so data that isn't really meant to be communicated or uh transmitted through audio but you're you're making it sound anyway
3: yeah that's it exactly
0: (laughs) okay so can we hear what that sounds like
3: yeah before delving into the mysteries of receiving and sending messages without wires, a word as to the history of the art and its present-day applications may be of service.
1: So so what I did there was the text file was way shorter than the audio file, um, so I just had it repeat a bunch of times. Every time you hear that throb of static in the file, that is the complete alphabetic text reading of it.
0: Wow. Look, so I can imagine layering that with actually some of the other things we've talked about you know you could you could make a song out of that noise you could add vocal effects you could add sound effects uh, you could use something like that Al- almost with a, a secret meaning right like mm-hmm. the full depth of the meaning that you've put here isn't audibly apparent without explanation you know no one could hear it and be like oh yeah i hear the text file there um i don't <laughs> know but somehow adding that layer it's it's inherently engaging it's like an easter egg
1: Well, I will tell you about my motivation for this particular approach. Uh, Carl Sagan's wonderful book, Contact. Um, In that book, when Ellie Arroway originally starts to get the contact from the aliens, she hears it as a throbbing sound she's picking up over the radio telescopes. And it isn't until a little while later, after discovering the sound, that they realize the sound file is not the only data that is being transmitted. They're... Um, eventually able to extract building diagrams from the audio file, and that is what allows them to build the spaceship thing that you know, blah blah blah, that part that's that doesn't matter. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I was trying to do here, in reverse, was to put back in data that was not audio into an audio file and just see what happens. That
0: is so exciting. Um, I remember playing the alternate reality game, The Lost Experience, back between maybe like the second and third season of Lost, which is the best show ever. And there was something kind of like that. What, one of the clues in this ARG was this weird, glitchy sounding audio file that finally someone figured out. And they said, wait, if we if we put this visually the right way using the right program, this audio file actually includes an image that gives us a code that we then put it on another website and it gives us the next piece of the puzzle.
1: That is awesome.
0: Well, I wasn't the one who who figured out the clue, but it was really cool to kind of read people figuring it out in real time. There's something inherently, oh my goodness, people can do this and it can happen in that sort of experiment. And as you showed us, we can do that stuff for free and fairly simply on our own. I mean, we have the tools these days.
1: Yeah, I had no idea how to do this uh, two hours before I had done it. I got some help from the Internet and poof, I'm very proud of it.
0: Okay, so we've been playing with this file for a long time now through a mm-hmm. lot of etudes. And I think we could even do more. We haven't done the radio drama. Uh, we haven't done too much of a dialogue about it. I mean, we heard a little bit of that. But it seems like if we sat down with 10 more people, we could think of 10 more kinds of soundwriting to put this book into. I mean, the the possibilities are really endless. I mean, what would even happen if we played every single one of these at the same time?
1: <laughs> Well, Kyle, I am glad you asked. Here is what it sounds like if we take all of this audio information that we made during the etudes and play it in a single file. Wow.
3: uh,
0: We talked earlier about how you can identify separate layers in audio files, but I guess you can kind of push past that too. I mean, I heard little bits here and there of the other etudes, but after a while, it just kind of turns into noise.
1: It does. But if you think about reading as an archaeological undertaking, looking at different layers and refocusing your attention in different directions at different times, I think listening to all of this noise does give us some more of that metaphor than is possible when reading with the eyes. So, no, we don't want to use everything at the same time. We don't want to listen to it, at least. There's not a lot of value there. But I think we've covered quite a lot of possibilities to give people different ideas on how to get started using different types of sound manipulation. Yeah, and
0: remember that point we heard earlier in the lit review section from ret comp scholars like Steph Sorasso, Katie Fargo, Ahern, Aaron Anderson, that there really is a lot more to sound and sonic pedagogies than simply recording speech All the ways we manipulate sound are worthy of our investigation and our play.
1: Yeah. Now that we've played around, what do you think about that question we posed way back at the beginning of this introduction?
0: We posed a question? I mean, that was a really long time ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was, and we did. See, I even have a recording of it, which, of course, that's one thing audio is really good for. Yeah, I,
0: I think we're really going to have to dig further in if we're going to understand what's happening here
1: before we'll be able to say if reciting words alone is or is not soundwriting. See, we were talking about what soundwriting is and isn't, and part of what we asked was the question of how much you had to do to a recording to make it count. Oh yeah,
0: totally. I, I don't know, it sounds almost like the wrong question now, doesn't it? We've heard so many things that you could do with sound, and all of them I'd call soundwriting.
1: I would too. So maybe instead of saying exactly what does and doesn't count as sound writing, we can say something about what sound writing lets you do and what it invites you to try.
0: Yes. Sound writing as invitational. Sound writing as a chance to use the available means of sound recording, collecting, and editing to make something new.
1: Yeah. That's sound writing. It's when you manipulate recorded sound and make something new from it.
0: And that is as good a place as any to end.
5: Thank you for listening to the introduction. Kyle, Courtney, and me, Robot John, would like to thank everyone whose voices and sounds were heard in this introduction Eric Detweiler, Will Stanley D. Harrison, me Rager, Stephen Cross. Caitlin Patterson, Kevin Putman, Emily Bloom, Jennifer Bowie, Randy Alfred, Steph Sarasol, Katie fargo Jonathan Danfair, Edward Gaynor, Karen Lunsford's niece and nephew Kalen and Jacob, the workers of Amazon's Mechanical Turk, the Sesame Street Kids, Lauren Mayberry, Mark Blauhera, as well as the scholars, content creators, and coders whose work we cited throughout. Please see our references page for full bibliographical information. What about me, Kyle and Courtney? You forgot to thank me. Maybe you don't love me after all. Thanks, Thanks, Robot John. John! I am so happy. Yeah, sound writing.